Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today we're doing another theology episode, and I have another very special guest, Dr. Gavin Ortland. Uh, Dr. Ortland serves as the senior pastor of First Baptist Church of Ojai in Ojai, California. He earned a PhD from Fuller Theological Seminary in Historical Theology, and an MDiv from Covenant Theological Seminary. He is the author of several books in the realm of theology, and he regularly regularly writes on um, theology online in the realm of uh, theology and, and Christian living. And so he's kind of become a name for retrieval theology, and I love that, and I want to get to know a little bit more about that. So without further ado, Dr. Orland, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's, is it Ojai? Is that, is that the right pronunciation? That's always the first question of each podcast. And yes, <laughs> you got it right. Not everyone does, but you did it. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I thought I heard that before. Um, so just I, I was going through your book in preparation for this, and your story of how you got into retrieval is so interesting. It starts, I believe, at a an airport reading, uh, reading Planninga. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, I, I realize this makes me a, a total theology nerd here right out of the gate. But That's right. Yeah, I, I, I got my hands on an uh, article from Alvin Plantinga going over uh, an ontological argument, which is an argument for God's existence from the very idea of God. Never heard of it before, hmm. and it just drew me in, and I just found myself thinking about it. And at a certain point, the idea of the argument sort of hit me. And the, the power of it hit me. And it was just so interesting. And I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And that was the beginning of a, a long journey. Mm. Yeah. And so from from planning as uh, ontological argument, which has to do with modality and necessity and all this crazy stuff, you went from that um, to Anselm and, and the, the proslogion. Is, is that does that uh, is that the story? That's broadly the story. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Anselm, I was like a senior in high school, I think, or a junior okay. in high school. So I was not tracking with all of the nuances of what Plantinga was doing at that time. <laughs> yeah. But I think I got the basic idea of the ontological argument. And to this day, that's my favorite idea. It is wow. just so interesting to to think about. Um, but yes, Plantinga then led me to Anselm. Anselm, of course, was the first proponent of an ontological argument and uh, yeah, so that just led me, and then Anselm led me into, or, or really the, the ontological argument in Anselm is just three chapters of his book, the Proslogion, chapters two through four. And so my whole uh, dissertation was on the rest of the book. So mm. planting and led me to Anselm uh, and his ontological argument, that led me to the rest of Anselm. And I saw there's so much more going on in that book than just an argument for God's existence. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. It's such a funny way to go into uh, the the patristics and and uh, even Anselm's not a patristic uh, early father or anything, but from there you talk about in the book that you went back even further and further. Uh, how do we classify you uh, as a theologian? Are you would you consider yourself a, a historical theologian or a systematic theologian? Do you fit nicely in a, in a category? You know, I think historical theology would be technically kind of my area of training. That's where most of my publishing is in, and that's what my doctorate was in. But uh, just like we're talking about now with planting a leading to Anselm, I tend to think that a genuine, sincere interest in truth and a genuine yeah. curiosity tends to spill over neat, neat categories. And yeah. I tend to think it's healthy for people in one discipline to engage in other disciplines. Yeah. So um, because a lot of these people that I'm interested in retrieving, like Anselm, they weren't really neatly within theology as opposed to philosophy. Right. The whole distinction between philosophy and theology, as we understand that, is really a modern thing. That's not something that's really authentic to um, church history 
yeah. um, before the modern era. So I don't like to, I, I try to stay uh, outside of just one area. Yeah. That's really helpful. And uh, it's, it's evident from the footnotes where you're, you're pulling in lots of different people from lots of different disciplines. And uh, that, that was really cool to see. So um, in, in getting in starting our conversation here, I thought it'd be important to get some definitions going. Uh, actually, even before that, you have a, a new channel on YouTube. And I want to just plug that before we forget. Yeah. It. Um, how, how can people find that? What, what's that channel called? Okay, that's called Truth Unites. Thank you so much for mentioning it. I just started it two months ago. I'm really excited about it. I Honestly, I did it kind of as a hobby. I just mm-hmm. have so much fun learning about, we were talking about cameras and how to set everything up. And yeah. um, and I think YouTube's a really fun and interesting place to engage with ideas. Lots of people are on YouTube who would never go to church and never read a book even about right. what philosophy or something. So it's called Truth Unites. The idea is that so much of our world is disintegrating and becoming more divisive and polarized. And so it has an ironic thrust to it, and it's both apologetics and theology, both interviews and videos I do. So people could just search Truth Unites and find it. Yeah, that's awesome. I, uh, I've, I've watched a lot of them, and uh, they're really enjoyable and uh, really uh, digestible. Yeah, there's there you have short ones in there, some longer ones in there. I think you recently, yeah, more recently, you just did one uh, with Dr. Craig on his new book. And then, uh, yeah, you did one on the mathematical argument, or Vigner's uh Vigner and using uh, Vigner's uh, surprising uh, argument from mathematics. He didn't really make an argument, but he said it's it's surprising that mathematics maps on the world, and Craig uses that for an argument uh, for God. And it's interesting to see that that was on your channel as well. Yeah, that I love that argument. I think it's so interesting. That was the first YouTube video I did. Uh, it's straight out of. So forgive me for talking about a book, but I no have problem. a a book coming out next fall, fall of 2021. It's called Why God Makes Sense in a World That Doesn't, Hmm. The Beauty of Christian Theism. And chapter two uh, of that book recaps a couple of arguments broadly in the realm of design arguments. And I make an argument from math, from music, and from love Hmm. for God. Um, And then I abstract from those three arguments to make the general principle with reference to a couple other things. So I'm basically saying God is the best explanation of math, music, and love. And uh, the math argument's a lot of fun. Um, I I don't like math. That's the funny thing about <laughs> it. I hate it. That was my least favorite subject all growing up. Same, but same. Thinking, about, thinking about the philosophy of math is really interesting. Yeah. And it is, I would say it really is, I, I was very skeptical. I tend to not it's funny that I've gotten into apologetics because I tend to be fairly skeptical mm-hmm. of a lot of apologetics and how it's done. And I was very skeptical. You could ever make an argument for God from these things. But the more I looked into it, um, I actually think on a naturalistic worldview, math really is this inexplicable, mysterious thing yeah. for its beauty, for its consistency, and for its applicability. Those mm-hmm. are the three topics I treat in the book. So people can check that, check out that video if they're, if they check out the channel. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Looking forward to that book. Um, I, I similarly like that. I don't like math, but like kind of the foundational kind of arguments, logic, mathematics, um, and particularly because they're inescapable. You, you can't get past math. If you didn't have math, uh, we, we couldn't even talk about our books. We couldn't talk about our fingers. And um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, looking forward to that. Sounds really awesome. So uh, moving on from that, uh, in your book, you're talking about it. So it's called Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals. And so mm-hmm. I thought, uh, since you mentioned Protestants a lot as well, I, I wonder um, if we could just define, can we define uh, Protestant and Protestantism, Evangelical and Evangelicalism? Okay. Um, so if you think of Christendom, uh, you often will think in terms of three sort of categories, mm-hmm. though it's more complicated than this in the nuances. You think of the Eastern churches, which are not, and there's that's where it gets really complicated because there's a number of different expressions of Eastern Christianity. And then you've got Roman Catholicism. Protestantism would be the other. And this is a um, protest movement against the Roman Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. How exactly we define it is part of what I'm getting into in this book. And I'm arguing we don't need to define it in a sectarian, in as sectarian a way as it's popularly understood. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, so this would, you know, go back to the 16th century and Martin Luther and others who 
um, made made their protest against both doctrinal and spiritual corruption that they perceived, especially throughout the medieval era in the Roman Catholic Church. So you think of in our American context, you think of so many. I mean, and this is the great criticism against Protestantism is there's so many denominations. Um, but right. you think of Anglicanism, Lutheranism, um, Methodism, Reformed uh, churches, Pentecostal churches, Quaker. Baptist, yeah. Congregational, and on and on we could go. Mm-hmm. So, so that would be uh, Protestant. Now, uh, when we think of yeah, so I guess we haven't yet, but um, in defining evangelical, uh, is that something that can that can go beyond these uh, borders here? Is that how, how would we look at evangelical? I guess. Okay, I think of the term evangelical as a as a broader, uh, more descriptive term. And it's certainly used in different ways. It can be used in a more theological sense. So people can speak of a, an evangelical Roman Catholic, and they mean right. something very definite by that. But usually in a historical sense, it has to do with the um, expressions of Protestant Christianity between liberalism and, and fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. So in our context, especially, this is looking back to Billy Graham, uh, sometimes people say, if, you know, the definition of uh, an evangelical is someone who likes Billy Graham. <laughs> I've heard that one, yeah. Kind of anecdotal way to do it, but surprisingly accurate. Um, but, you know, you think of like uh, Fuller Seminary and Christianity Today, the magazine, and the NAE, National Association of Evangelicals, and all these institutions that are springing up in the mid-20th century, and they're all self-consciously trying to distinguish themselves from both their from both liberalism, but also from fundamentalism. And this yeah. is kind of births the evangelical movement, though it's a really hard term to define today because it's become so politicized and, and so fragmented as well. Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, and, and even in your, uh, you referencing all these different uh, uh, places, you know, uh, organizations, Christianity Today and stuff, I, I keep, you know, I got Carl Henry in my head and his name's over here on, on the building. I got all of his books here. And uh, the the uneasy uneasy conscious uh, conscience of uh, fundamentalism, right? Is that right? Uneasy that's conscience right. of modern, uh, fun, yeah. Um, and that's something I want to reclaim. So I want to like retrieve that name. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering your thoughts on the word evangelical. Is it is it too far gone, uh, or is it a name that we can get back? And is it a name that's worth getting back? Hmm. I've always been an advocate for being slow to jettison terms. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I'm very uh, missiologically oriented, so I'm very sympathetic in general to changing what we need to do in order to reach the culture as the culture changes, just as a general temperament. Yeah. But we've had a lot of friends, and I'll turn my camera back on here. Sorry, it just yeah, kick, no, no kicks problem. out there. But we've had a lot of friends who... Um, you know, have really wanted to kind of leave aside denominational names. So you go from such and such congregational church or such and such Baptist church to just, you know, sometimes the new names can be more on the cheesy side. They're all, yeah, they're all cross point or city view or yeah. Yep. Or the river or just things that feel like, <laughs> right. just feels like trying too hard sometimes. But yeah, and I'm so I'm generally kind of cautious about that. I would say that recent political dynamics have made me kind of revisit this and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm kind of, uh, yeah, the term evangelical has some connotations that are pretty tough that we've got to work with. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know the answer, but I definitely wrestle with this and I'm kind of open to considering. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. It's, it's, it's rough uh, depending on who you're talking with. Uh, if they say, are you an evangelical? And it's like, well, let me do, let's do some work here first and find out what you mean by that. Cause mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think back to like Jacques Lefebvre de Top, you know, the French reformer. And I think, he was a, he was an evangelical before Protestantism came around before Martin Luther and so this this word even predates Protestant and I think it can be theologically so useful to to unite you know so you're a evangelical Methodist uh, I'm an evangelical uh, free church or wherever I'm at and I I want that unity but then again in reaching the culture it can be a huge barrier to tell someone that and them just hear Donald Trump or something weird yeah. Right, exactly. I, I think that the burden of the book is whatever term we use, 
you know, I have a lot of friends who are deconstructing in their faith altogether, mm. or they're leaving evangelicalism in some way. Maybe it's to become Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or some other tradition. And the general burden of the book is that um, evangelicals don't need to leave evangelicalism, even if, whether we call it that or not, in order to be deeply rooted in history. Yeah. And to be uh, to see ourselves as connected vitally to all two thousand years of church history. That's that's the basic I- idea uh, of the book, and uh, you know I think that needs to be said because, amidst other uh, criticisms of evangelicalism we might have, uh, we're not usually known for being very historically rooted. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Jack, uh, my professor here, uh, uh, Dr. John Woodbridge, says. You know, evangelicals view of history is that, you know, evangelical history started with Billy Graham. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, a little bit, you know, and it's a it's a joke, obviously, but there's a little sting of truth to it. And so that's why uh, I'm so excited to have you on here. So let's let's continue uh, diving in here. Um, What what is theological retrieval? Continuing on with our definitions. Okay, A, a shorthand way to get at it is to say historical theology unto constructive systematic theology. Hmm. So you, you engaging the thought of previous generations of Christian theology for the uh, for the sake of help in doing theology today, it ought, that, that's kind of too simple probably because it often has um, also involves uh, going back to theological resources that have been particularly forgotten or hmm. overlooked in some way. So you're sort of retrieving them in the sense that they're not already visible. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a huge movement right now. It's kind of been encouraging. It's just, I mean, it's massive. I, this, my book came out in 2019 and it just is fascinating to see it. It seems to be striking a chord right now. I think just because of the cultural dynamics where a lot of people are feeling the barrenness of all the options that in terms of just modern theology, both liberal and evangelical and retrieval is a way to, um, go back to something that's bigger and more enchanting than what you find in the modern era. Yeah. So I, it's a huge, huge movement right now. Yeah. I've, I've noticed that as well. I've seen a lot. Um, I'm, I'm more into uh, analytic theology, just, just uh, where I'm at right now. And I've seen a lot in, in analytic theology, uh, a lot of retrieval of doctrines have just been forgotten, like the doctrine of immensity. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. what, what is it? God is immense. Well, what does that mean? Oh, and seeing uh, what, what you talked about unto constructive theology, that these are tools that our forefathers used for specific reasons. And we forgot about them because maybe the, the terminology got outdated or we didn't catechize our children or we we're reading left behind books instead of uh, other things. And we lost these words, but I've, I've seen them coming back. And just like you said, it's, it's really encouraging to me because it, it's opening up a whole uh, world of other theological tools that I can use in discipleship with guys on campus every day. So that's been super fun. Mm. Um, but I wanted to talk about another word that you mentioned uh, in a tweet just recently, you, you had a tweet about uh, theological triage. And mm. uh, I just, I'm wondering what, what, uh, what do you mean by that? What's theological triage? Okay. Well, this is, there's a book uh, on this that I wrote that came out in April of this year. It's called finding the right hills to die on the case mm. for theological triage. And it's all about just ranking different doctrines in order of importance. Um, it just, honestly, it's a more practical book. It's a shorter, more accessible book, kind of bordering on popular level type book. Okay. And it just stems out of my experiences as a pastor. And it's all about um, trying to help us major on the majors and minor on the minors. That could be a colloquial way of getting at. So triage, you know, is a metaphor from a medical context where mm-hmm. people rank different injuries on the battlefield, for instance, to know which to treat first. Yeah. And so in theological triage, you might say like the Trinity is a sort of first rank doctrine. I suggest four rankings, four categories. Um, I talk about something like baptism as a second rank doctrine that is, doesn't make you a Christian, but it might affect where you go to church. Mm-hmm. Third rank doctrines would be things that they matter, but they don't need to even influence where you go to church. Yeah. So some of the details leading up to the second coming, you know, the nature and timing of the millennium of Revelation 20, for example, um, I argue that's a third rank. We don't even need to, you can be on staff together and just disagree and no problem. And then yeah. fourth rank are things that don't matter at all. 
So that's a more practical book that just stems out of my pastoral experiences. But it's been interesting, my academic work in retrieval and my pastoral sensibilities that make me interested in triage, they do connect. Yeah. Because there's a lot of perspective we can get about issues maybe we've ranked too highly today when we go back and see, oh, you know, Augustine didn't believe this or B.B. Warfield didn't believe this or J. Gresham Machen didn't believe this or whoever it might be. Yeah. So they, those two areas sometimes connect. Yeah, that's that's the point I, I was hoping to draw out of you there, uh, especially we'll, we'll get there, uh, Lord willing, here uh, on simplicity or something like that. But um, in uh, applying theological triage, even when you're retrieving. And so if you have this doctrine, um, it could be simplicity, it could be whatever. But if you're retrieving this doctrine and it's messing uh, with with something higher up on the scale, then maybe it's not worth retrieving or maybe it's worth retrieving and not being uh, as dogmatic about or, or not being as uh, not treating it as a first order thing instead of a third order. And I just thought that was so interesting to use these two tools together. And I think it's really helpful because a lot of times you can uh, discover something new. Like if I discovered immensity and I made that my hobby horse and mm-hmm. everything has to be fit through this lens of immensity where maybe the maybe uh, the Trinity is a little bit higher than that, or the incarnation, or mm. um, so I, I thought that was just another helpful thing that that you're working on that we should bring up uh, for the folks at home, another tool to be using. Yeah, thanks. I think it, we mentioned the tweet that I put out a while back about how a lot of American evangelicals care more about the Rapture than the Trinity, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But it, I mean, maybe they wouldn't care more, but that tends to come up as a doctrinal barrier more frequently for, for many. And that's, that's unfortunate, I think. And, and uh, more time is spent studying uh, the one instead of the other and trying to, well, it's just a mystery. And so we can't, yeah, it is, but we can get, you know, explain to your kids what, who the God is that we worship. Right. Mm. Um, All right. So, so that's really helpful. Um, I want to move on to uh, what would you call the manifesto in the book? Um, Mm. This manifesto for, uh, uh, theological retrieval. And so we talked about a little bit that the, that evangelicals can retrieve, uh, that we, we can go back, we can look at history. Um, why would anyone be tempted to think that we can't, I guess? Because mm. I know we are, but why is that the case that people uh, bring that charge against evangelicals, I guess, that, that we are ahistorical? Mm-hmm. Well, and that's right. And some evangelicals themselves uh, think in categories of interpretation of church history that lend to that. So, for example, the death of the church idea, um, the old Enlightenment character of the medieval era as the Dark Ages, mm-hmm. this time of backwards superstition and so forth. Um, you know, I think a lot of evangelicals really do take, or the fall of the church paradigm. This is a very common view. I mean, I would say it's probably a default view for a lot of evangelicals where basically they think, so to speak, the lights went out at a certain point, sometimes very early on. Sometimes people say by the late second century, wow. you know, the church had just fallen apart. That, that That's the mentality. Sometimes more frequently you'd have the conversion of Constantine and the church-state connection as being seen as the, the beginning of the downfall. And then they see the medieval era as this time of such deep corruption that there's really, that they see the the reformation as a resurrection. Yeah. It's like the church is coming back to life. And I argue in the book, the, the basic idea in the first chapter um, is that uh, the reformers themselves didn't think that way. They understood their efforts to be a retrieval of the purity of the early church and in fundamental continuity with the church in every generation. Yeah. And I draw a lot from Francis Turretin, who is mm-hmm. a very uh, skillful uh, Reformed theologian, kind of second-generation Reformed theologian, who he uh, was responding to the Roman Catholic criticism of novelty, saying the Roman Catholics in the Counter-Reformation were basically saying, we're old and you're new. And Francis Turretin's response to that was very nuanced and very methodical and very, I think, very helpful. And he's basically saying, no, Protestants are authentically and vitally engaged to the early church. And he gave a number of different reasons for that, having to do with uh, uh, preceding separatist movements like John Wycliffe, John Huss, 
many others. That was an interesting thing for me to learn is how many dissenting voices there were before Luther. But then also the notion of a remnant. And he says, our church was in the papacy. Hmm. Uh, And he appeals to this idea of a a remnant and says, and he with Luther and, and many, many others were very adamant to say the church never died. God always preserved the true church. And I think that's a more generous posture. And I think yeah. that's a more theologically uh, responsible interpretation of church history. And it allows us as Protestants to look at an Anselm, for example, my my favorite, and say this is not a person from some other tradition fundamentally, yeah, yeah. Right. but he's someone within my tradition. Yeah, man, that's so... I love being able to say that. I love saying, yeah, this is, he's from my church. Tra- yeah. I, that sounds so great. And you, you brought up so many good points about the reformers and how uh, there's like this caricature, caricature um, just drawing on like Calvin's post tenebras uh, Luke's and like, yeah, now, now the lights are back on. And it's like, well, yeah, Calvin didn't totally mean that and read, read his institutes and he's working so hard to cite, all the the fathers and saying no this is what they've said this is what the church has said and so let's get back to it let's let's repent and let's turn back that's right i, I i'm glad you brought up brought that up because the um at the beginning of the institutes the prefatory letter to the yeah. institutes calvin is a great example of this he gives example after example where he's saying the church fathers are on our side mm-hmm. on all these different issues now you know, someone could disagree with him about this or that example, but the point is that's how he was arguing. Yeah, he wasn't saying who cares about the church fathers. Right, he was appealing to them as a sort of authority, which is very interesting. Another place he says, to paraphrase, all we're trying to do in the Reformation is go back to the purity of the fourth century, which I've always thought is an interesting way to sum up the goals of the Reformation. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, what uh, what's um, Warfield's line is like uh, the Reformation was Augustine's uh, soteriology triumphing over his his ecclesiology. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I love that. Um, okay, so so we've seen that that evangelicals can uh, retrieve. So why why should we? You know, there's a lot in. I, I brought up the analytic uh, theology um, movement. There's a lot of folks uh, in that movement who, and I don't think this is unfair criticism, not all of them, but there are a lot who say, hey, uh, if it doesn't conceptually work, then we can drop it um, and we'll just keep going. And so if history is a problem for us, then just jettison that and we can get back and and we can reinterpret the way we've read scripture and stuff. So um, we've seen that evangelicals can go back and retrieve, but why should we? Mm -hmm. Well, in the book, I give three metaphors, which I'll just mention here. Uh, My short answer to this would be, though, just to encourage someone to just dive in to classical theological texts Mm -hmm. and just give it a try. There's no theoretical answer I can give that will be as strong for someone as the experience of working through Augustine's Confessions or Athanasius or Boethius or whoever and just tasting the richness of these um, texts and they're more interesting and they're easier to read than a lot of modern theology books. They're, yeah. they're more honest than a lot of modern books. It feels like, but the metaphors I give are um, school travel and counseling. Mm-hmm. So I say that engaging in theological retrieval is first like going to school. That is, it's simply just a great way to learn. I mean, if you just, a lot of these classic texts like Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica was meant for the sake of catechesis or teaching. Right. And it really is useful uh, just to impart categories and just become a part of the conversation. There's so much that um, we just have never learned because we've never waded into these resources. Um, Travel, that metaphor comes out of my own experience studying abroad for six months or so when I was in college. And just the experience of living in England and being immersed in a different culture and the way that changes you and the way it shapes you. And, and, for me, retrieval has been so much more than just learning. Hmm. It imparts values. It helps you see the world through different eyes. Um, it's just a way to get out of modern Western ways of thinking. And it will have moments of kind of cognitive dissonance, but it's really healthy to be stretched in those ways, I think, yeah. just as it's healthy to tr- visit other cultures and, and look at other ways of seeing the world. And then counseling, 
Uh, that's a metaphor for the ways retrieval can help arbitrate disputes among evangelicals. Hmm. We can go back. This is my book that I mentioned, Retrieving Augustine's Doctrine of Creation. We can take areas of dispute or that areas that are contested in our theology and get an objective voice, yeah. voices that predate the modern era that aren't on one side or the other, but they can weigh into the controversy. And yeah. I just found that kind of this relates to what we were saying about triage, but I found that just happens so frequently. Someone from a different time can offer a helpful perspective on yeah. the, the matters of the day. Yeah, that's really helpful. C.S. Lewis talks about that um, and reading, reading widely and reading the past because they aren't, uh, they aren't looking at the same problems that we are. And so they could have this clear voice into different areas. And, and in reading them, you yourself kind of become a man or woman outside of time and mm. able to have a, a broader theological, you know, church, big C uh, perspective on these different issues. And I think that's awesome. I, I like that. Uh, I, I need to grab your book on Augustine's uh, Doctrine of Creation. I've seen him used in really help, helpful ways in the old earth, young earth uh, kind of debates. And people say, instead of instead of coming at me and um, just saying I'm a heretic one way or the other, well, here's what Augustine thought. What do you, what do you think about that? Because you like Augustine. Most of us like Augustine. Would you call him a heretic? You know, I don't think so. So just loosen up a little bit and we can have this this conversation without being so aggressive towards each other. Exactly. And that's the great value of Augustine. It's hard to find a more mainstream Western theologian than Augustine. So he's a pretty safe person to quote as an authority, but his views were very different in these intriguing ways from a lot of modern conservative evangelical views. Another example of this would be on the millennium, mm. the default view of American evangelicals for what is seen as kind of the normal view, uh, which would be more of a dispensational premillennial view, is out of alignment with the vast majority of theology just throughout previous times. And certainly, you know, you have a little bit of premillennialism in the, among the early church fathers, but it really falls off. And it, for most of church history, between Augustine and the 17th century, you almost don't get any premillennialism. And dispensational premillennialism is totally new. And then yeah. starting in like the 19th century, so it's helpful to say, okay, wait a second. If I, you know, if amillennialism, for example, is suspicious, that means B.B. Warfield is suspicious. Jonathan Edwards, J. Gresham Machen, who wrote mm. Christianity and Liberalism, and all these people. And it just, again, it's like the counselor perspective. It's like a counselor can weigh into your family history with an objective outside voice. So these theologians can weigh into the evangelical discussions that happen today. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <clears throat> so it, I'm trying to, uh, I might be putting myself on the hook here, but th this comes up for me. So I'm I'm not quite a Baptist. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of, I like the free church mentality a little bit more, um, depending on which free church you're at, I guess. But if you uh, if you hold to infant baptism and you can, uh, you're convinced from scripture, that's cool. You can be a part of this church. If you don't, uh, that's cool too. You can be part of this church. My, my brother, uh, he's listening, probably tearing his hair out because he's much more Baptist than I am. But but this uh, this kind of weight of the evidence of the uh, full church of, of history kind of comes against that that Baptist perspective and saying, well, most most Christians in their uh, in history have baptized their their babies there. So what am I going to? It's a new thing for me to have to wrestle with and say if I'm going to believe contrary to the rest of most of the church. Um, why do I do that? And um, I better have some pretty good reasons for it. Uh, are, are you, sort of put you on the spot here, are you PCA or where are you ordained in? What's your church? I'm Baptistic. I, I, my okay. ordination is in a congregational denomination and I serve at a Baptist church. Oh, this is perfect then, man. I thought you were going to come against me. All right. So you're the guy here who can help us out with this question. <laughs> well, I have wrestled with baptism a lot because I grew up in the PCA. Okay, that's and why I, I'm thinking that, yeah. Uh, went to Covenant Seminary, loved Covenant Seminary, loved the PCA, had a great upbringing there. That's where a lot of the most wonderful churches I've been involved in are PCA churches. Um, and I I, uh, I had an article come out in the journal Themelios, if anyone wants to look it up, where I give my reason for why I became a Baptist. Mm. One of the things I say when someone makes the historical appeal, basically, because I have had people say to me, like, you're interested in retrieval, but you're a Baptist. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> How do you reconcile that as though it's 
necessarily at odds to be those two things. Mm-hmm. And one of the appeals that I make is that when Zwingli raised his argument for pyto-baptism, he said, everybody since the apostles has gotten baptism wrong. And he said that because the rationale for infant baptism was different yeah. for the pre-Reformation church. It had more to do with baptismal regeneration. Right. And his argument was different from that. It was, and this is the Reformed argument is different. It has to do with the lines of covenant. Mm-hmm. So um, to some extent, all of us uh, are in this predicament, mm. uh, namely that our view is not wholly aligned with, with the majority practice of the church because baptismal regeneration is ex- exceedingly common. So yeah. I, I think that's helpful to kind of make it a fair fight in a way of just all of us have to wrestle with this. That's really good. Yeah. Even even like the, the Lutheran Lutheran view, which would hold to baptismal regeneration, is different than the, the Roman Catholic view mm. uh, and, and the other sacraments going in there. So that's a great point. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that... that <laughs> You're here to help with that because I think that would be that's that's a, a criticism that I hear of retrieval theology. Um, and you mentioned it in your book, and you you bring up uh, a, a couple different uh, key players in this debate. But some people will say, well, you know, if you're going to be involved in retrieval, you're kind of just beholden to historical theology, and you prioritize that against systematic theology. And um, can you help us think through that? Is is retrieval theology? Does it necessarily put historical theology above? systematic? Mm. As I think about that question, it's tough to know how to pit those two things apart because Mm. as I see things, systematic theology cannot be done from an ahistorical vantage point. So always, for all of us, the two will go together. Mm -hmm. It it more is a matter of how they work together. I'd want to say, first of all, that to do retrieval as a Protestant will mean that the the scripture alone is our final authority. And that's mm-hmm. an important point to say that we're not slavishly bound to any particular thing that we might find. Mm-hmm. Um, we read all of church history critically under the light of scripture. Um, but I don't think it's the case that retrieval theology needs to um, overemphasize the role of church history or or historical theology. I think it can be abused in that way, but at its best, I just see it as a matter of responsibly doing theology as a member of the church. The church extends throughout both space and time. So we don't do theology um, from outside the context of the church or from outside a historical position. It would be impossible to do that. Yeah. We live in time, <laughs> um, and and if we uh, have the gospel has come to us, we are a member of the church. And unless we just like hadn't lived on a remote island, like in the movie Castaway, yeah, and, Bible washes up, yeah, and a Bible washes up. It, you know, even then, you're a member of the invisible church. But unless there's some unusual circumstance like that, we're usually heavily influenced by Christians around us and before us. So yeah. I, I just tend to think it's it's really impossible to avoid doing retrieval. The question mm. is trying to do it well. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really helpful. And doing it well would incorporate, yeah. Uh, systematic theology, which, which does have the historical aspect, biblical theology, exegetical theology, and really to, to some other theologies in there probably too, but yeah. to limit yourself uh, to one would be to make yourself oblong and all out of shape in your theology. That's exactly right. And, to your point that you just said there, when I engage Augustine, when I engage Anselm, when I engage Aquinas, they were not biblically illiterate. You right. know, they were very, that's a stereotype of the church fathers is that mm-hmm. they weren't interested in the Bible, but the church fathers were heavily immersed in scripture as were the medieval doctors. And they were also very philosophically skilled. Mm-hmm. So they had that kind of broad, so engaging in retrieval is not likely to steer us away from the other disciplines because we'll find ourselves in situations where they're overlapping. Yeah. That's really helpful. That's it's encouraging. I want to go out and do some retrieval right now, but we got to finish this here. So, (laughs) uh, so, so we talked about kind of the manifesto. We talked about how evangelicals can do it and that they should do it and that they shouldn't be, you know, slavishly engaged. Uh, They should also be practicing triage and in thinking through the doctrines that matter most. And um, now I want to go into uh, your practice of retrieval and, and you, in the second half of your book, you you went into a couple different doctrines and you 
showed us how to do it. So I, uh, what's really interesting to me is, is going to be chapter uh, four and then your chapter on uh, simplicity, although they're all interesting, of course, but I can only talk with, uh, with you about a couple here. So chapter four, I would call it the authorial model of providence, uh, the God-world relation. Um, God is an author and we live in this book. And you, um, would you characterize it that way or, or am, am I missing something there? I think that's right. Yeah, it's, it, it, it explores a, a sort of theological metaphor or analogy where mm-hmm. God is compared to an author and creation is compared to a story. Mm-hmm. And it's just using that as a heuristic, yeah. knowing that all metaphors will have limitations, but seeing what might this open up. And yeah. then it's looking at particular historical doctrines through the lens of that metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. This is particularly important to me because I'm writing my, my master's thesis on defending this uh what, what Van Hooser, Dr. Van Hooser calls the authorial analogy, and I'm defending it against the problem of evil, uh, that, that this would make God the literal author of evil, you know, with this authorial analogy. And I, I say not quite, but uh, so I wanted to go in. I, it's just funny. I have written down here on the, uh, on the outline for you the analogy or metaphor because I've spent hours and hours and hours talking with uh, Dr. Van Hooser about the, the difference between analogy and a metaphor. Um, it's not as important for us here or anything like that, but you use um, this authorial model um, and, and you, you retrieve it and say it's helpful for freedom and foreknowledge, mm-hmm. uh, for thinking through the, the problem of freedom and foreknowledge that if God has foreknowledge of our future uh, actions, then how can we be free in doing that? And so um, can you explain to us how this, analog- this metaphor or analogy can help us think through the freedom foreknowledge problem? Sure, and I will trust you and Kevin Van Hooser better than myself to figure out is it a metaphor or an <laughs> analogy. So uh, you guys could probably speak to that better than I could. But um, this, yes, yeah, so this is drawing from Boethius, that he's the particular theologian engaged in his view of God's eternity as an eternal now. Um, and it is basically saying it, it changes the nature of the problem of foreknowledge because if you think in terms of a metaphor, you know, does, uh, so I like, I use the book, the Lord of the Rings throughout the chapter. So does J.R.R. Tolkien foreknow what uh, Bilbo or what Frodo is going to do later on in the book? Hmm. Well, it's not really foreknowledge. It's just a different kind of knowledge because uh, Tolkien is not in the time of the book. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, that's the way the analogy basically plays out to, to elucidate Boethius's definition of divine eternity, and it relativizes the problem of, you know, if God foreknows our actions, are they really free? Because yeah. it's not really foreknowing. Now, that doesn't totally solve the problem, but I think it more helps more accurately frame it, at least. Yeah, I think you're right. And and um, I've had a conversation with a couple uh, different philosophers on this program, uh, program uh, on this podcast, and I think this helps us get the get the problem back onto divine determinism uh, and, and whether that's the story that we live in or not. Um, the foreknowledge problem to me is, is so interesting, but um, the crux of the matter is did, did God write, are we living in a story, a book or a play? You know, do we have freedom to act otherwise or uh, did he write, you know, every exact thing that we do? And that's the difficulty. And that's really where your theology is going to come into play to help you think through, but the foreknowledge problem I think is, is really helped by this analogy of a book mm-hmm. or a novel, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to also, you, this is something totally new. Uh, I love the Tolkien by the way. So uh, I'm, I'm going to be using that as well. And uh, Dr. James Anderson uses that in, in one of his essays on the problem of evil and, and the same analogy or metaphor, but you talk about the extra Calvinisticum and Tolkien and uh, I wonder first if you could just define that for our listeners, extra Calvinisticum, and then explain how how this can help us think through that. Okay, this is one of my favorite points of theology. I'll never mm. forget the day and during my MDiv when it came up, and it just uh, blew my mind. It's just such an interesting idea, but it's a Latin phrase that stands basically just for Calvin's extra, mm-hmm. and the word extra meaning outside, uh, for instance. So it ha- it means that. Um, during his incarnate life, the Son of God was not limited to the flesh of Jesus, but continued to be omnipresent and possess all the 
full range of divine attributes. So mm. it's not just omnipresence. It's also his mediatorial role over the angels, for example. His yeah. you know, Hebrews 1.3 says that he sustains all things by his powerful word. The extra Calvinisticum is, uh, it says he was still doing that in the year 10 AD. Uh, even as he's a boy running around, he's also sustaining the stars and so forth. Um, or Colossians 1.17 says, in him all things hold together. It's the Son of God. So um, it the term comes out of Reformed versus Lutheran disputes, but I've argued that it goes back to the Church Fathers and others. You see it in Athanasius and others. It's a very broadly Catholic, lowercase c, Catholic doctrine. And I think it's the right way to think, as counterintuitive as it might first appear to us. It It, it might feel like we're damaging the incarnation in some way like is this fully uh is he fully man if he's still omnipresent Mm. but i actually having traced it out i think we have to affirm that he is the other the other option would be like a strong uh kenosis model where where he's giving up all of the all of his extra he's giving up all the uh eternal powers that he has and and becoming man which seems very odd Uh, it doesn't seem to be a good doctrine to hold. Yeah. That's right. And as, and as puzzling and mind bending it as it is to think about this doctrine, I do think the analogy helps because mm-hmm. so the analogy here is Tolkien writes himself into middle earth as a story within the book, mm-hmm. which is eminently conceivable that he could do that. Yeah. In fact, there's other books like the Peter Whimsey novels and other books where the, the author does that, or people think the author does that. In fact, in the space trilogy, C.S. Lewis does that in uh, Paralandra at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's totally right. possible an author can write himself into the story. So if the author does that, he doesn't cease to exist in the other world. Mm-hmm. And so the reason why it, it seems so counterintuitive to us is sometimes we don't have as strong a creator-creation distinction as we need right. to have. Right. And, you know, so in the book, we, I talk about how, well, Tolkien could write himself into Middle Earth. He's doing things there close the book, travel to India for 20 years, come back, pick up, and um, no problem. Because these are two qualitatively different realms. And that's how we need to think about heaven and earth or the divine and human natures of Christ. So there's nothing contradictory about the Son of God being both infinite and truly incarnate uh, in the person of Christ. Yeah, and I love that. I love that analogy so much. Um, Or, or, yeah. I love it because when God the Son writes himself into this, the novel as uh, a character there with all the attributes of the other characters, it makes sense. Because if I write myself in in a story, that's a different, uh, I'm taking a different nature than the nature that I exist, that I have in my existence here in this realm. So there's a different nature even uh, between the realm that I exist here and the realm in the story. Uh, I think Catherine Tanner maybe talked about like a video game Christology. Um, mm-hmm. And and I'm sorry if that's like triggering for anyone out there or anything, but how uh, when you're, you're playing a video game, you have this different nature inside the video game, but it's one person existing outside and inside uh, one person. It's me playing. That's me in there, but there's a different nature. Maybe if it's halo, I can jump higher or I can shoot better, whatever it is still me but different nature and i think uh though i'm writing a paper in, in rejecting the kind of video game analogy and in opting for a novel i think mm-hmm. the novel is better but the the distinction there between the the natures i think is so helpful for for christian uh, a christian view of the hypostatic union yeah exactly right yeah the, the video game one is interesting too there's all kinds of that one and the play one are interesting because there's some kind of video games where the person in the video game has more freedom. So it's kind Mm. of like the play versus the novel, where is everything determined or is there a little wiggle room? So, but all of these are analogies, right? Just meant to elucidate what a lot of people haven't thought about in the meanings of the words person and natures. Mm. So with Christology, we want to say one person, two natures. And these analogies are just trying to probe the meaning of those terms. Yeah. That's helpful. I, I really, uh, we, we kind of rushed past it, or I rushed past it, but in, in you've described how the uh, extra Calvinisticum, Calvin's extra, is really not Calvin's. It's, it, mm-hmm. it comes from before him. Uh, in retrieval, are we just retrieving the content, or do we, do we also want to retrieve the name? So, like, should, should someone do work in trying to say this, the, 
the church extra, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the yeah, whatever it is that taking away from Calvin only because then it's not as, as sectarian or does that not matter? We're downstream of that. We should just roll with it. Well, I think it's helpful to point out if it's a historically accurate claim, as I think it is. In fact, mm-hmm. one of the leading texts on this doctrine, I think it was by David Willis. Mm-hmm. He has a sentence in there where he says we should rename it. He doesn't say it quite like this. To paraphrase him, he says we should rename it the extra Catholicum hmm. uh, with a lowercase yeah. c because, I like it. you know, you find it everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, that's really helpful. Yeah, I appreciate that. Okay, so now getting to one that's going to be more contentious. Uh, retrieving simplicity. So should, you know, should, uh, should evangelicals retrieve the doctrine of simplicity and are there multiple, uh, are there multiple models available to us or, you know, there's been called the austere model of simplicity. Like what do we, what do we make of it? What do you, what do you think uh, you, you talk about in your book here, but what should we do with simplicity? Well, simplicity is one of those doctrines that is, more controversial among evangelicals. It is jettisoned by many evangelicals. Um, it is a doctrine that's pretty universal mm-hmm. throughout church history. You see it throughout the church fathers. You see it about throughout medieval church. And then it's one of those things that simply gets carried on with the Reformation. So the reformers all affirm simplicity. You see it throughout the Puritans. You see it in the early modern era, Bavink and people like this. Um, it's simplicity... Just for people watching who don't know what that means, it just means doesn't mean God isn't complicated. Uh, it means that God is not made of parts. Mm-hmm. He's not. Uh, he's not composite. So, one way. And to your question of which model, I mean, there are. I think it's in this chapter. I talk about um, it's under the hex, the complexity of simplicity. I think is the heading. Yeah, yeah. I put that in here because that was such a great uh, title there. I love that. And I just point out to my vantage point, they're not necessarily always contradictory, but there's mm-hmm. there are different strands of thought in how simplicity plays out. Broadly speaking, in the Eastern tradition, it seems to function in a more negative, apophatic way. That is to say, just limiting how we can conceive of and talk of God in various ways. Whereas in the Western tradition, especially as you get to Thomas and then even beyond Thomas in the late medieval it becomes very, you get a very strong account of simplicity um, where, you know, God's essence is defined as his attributes and the attributes are, are all identical to the essence. And it's a, it's a strong account. Um, So I think there are different, but I think there, it's not necessarily that the case that these stronger Western accounts are always logically contradictory with the Eastern accounts. Sometimes they're playing different roles in relation to different problems. Yeah, well, that's that's a really interesting point that you make and that you just brought up again about um, about Eastern and Western. And so, you know, um, I was in a, a Trinity class here with um, on the Trinity uh, with Dr. McCall, and we were reading the Gregories, and we found simplicity there. And it's like, well, that was kind of a surprise for me because I hadn't read them before. And you think, oh, these are the guys who really emphasize the you know the the threeness of God, and but you still find simplicity here. And what you've just said and what you talk about is. Uh, that is doing a, a apophatic work. It's doing a God is not like this. Mm-hmm. And then even um, proponents of simplicity will say, no, this is still apophatic. But like you just said, it's doing a little bit more cataphatic. It's, it's saying a little bit more positive about God. And just because um, there's different people saying different things doesn't mean they're logically contradictory. Maybe one is just using this cataphatically and the other one's using it apophatically, positively and negatively. And they could still cohere with each other. It's just so interesting. Yeah, I, I don't hear that a ton. Yeah, yeah. I, I tend to think we should be a little careful, a little generous in how we work with a doctrine like this because it is so abstruse. Mm-hmm. It is so difficult. Um, we, I mean, the function of studying divine simplicity for me personally has been to bring me squarely facing the challenge of how different God is mm-hmm. from any other thing. And so it's been a fascinating learning process of, uh, and I'm, I'm a proponent of simplicity, even in its stronger forms. I I think it's part of the classical theism package that is important to maintain. Um, My view is that a lot of the criticisms and concerns that have come about in recent decades about it tend to assume a, a, a univocal relation between creator and creation. That is to say, 
creator and creation are in some sense on the same scale of being. Yes. And uh, I, I closed the whole chapter with a reference to C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces, where this priest is talking and he's basically saying, you can't assume that divine things are like human things. Mm-hmm. Why is it a problem that the gods flow in and out of things and they're different than you can com- understand in your mind? And I know that can be frustrating for people because then they say, well, what are, are there any rules for how we think about the divine nature then? And I don't think it means a free-for-all, but I do think that um, there's reasons why divine simpl- simplicity has been so universal and so common throughout the tradition. It's seen to maintain things that are important to maintain about God in terms of his absoluteness, that he's not conditioned by anything outside of himself, his aseity, that he, he has life and being only from himself. Mm-hmm. So I've in my study become convinced that it's an important doctrine to maintain myself. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm uh, in the midst of just getting my head torn apart. Uh, A lot of the theologians I trust are saying we got to go with simplicity. And a lot of the philosophers I love and trust are saying, it doesn't make sense, man. Like he's got properties or he's got, you know, he he has to have parts, even though they're not um, tritheists or anything. No, no one's bringing this uh, to the, to the doctrine of the Trinity and saying there's three gods or uh, if they are, then we would surely reject that. But I have the philosophers and the theologians, and they're all kind of pulling. And the, the philosophers, the Christian philosophers who uphold simplicity, most of them do so because of confessional constraints. Well, not because of that, right? That's that's really rude to their, their psychology there. But you could argue that because a lot of them are in the PCA or the OPC or um, confessionally, they have to affirm simplicity. And so some other folks are uh, a little bit more negative on that and saying, well, even if you wanted to, you couldn't follow here. And so I wonder what what's the role? This is a huge question. Uh, maybe you won't be able to answer it here, but uh, what's the role between the, the, the confessional inheritance, uh, even if it's not confessional, but church history, us receiving that, and then using um, modern tools of philosophy or using our reason and saying it doesn't seem... Uh, let's just take simplicity. So, you know, I got this confession. It says God is simple, but I've been doing some studying and it seems like I can't af- uh, affirm that philosophically. Mm-hmm. Where, where should, where's the weight go? I, I think you're right on in, in noticing this um, divide between how philosophers tend to approach simplicity and how theologians tend to approach simplicity it is so interesting and that's um yeah i don't fully know what to how to what to say about that as a more in the theology side i don't want to insult my philosopher friends right by saying something but i mean i i I do for me personally where it's come back to is the creator creation distinction yeah and i don't think it i wouldn't think it'd be fair to say that philosophers tend to have too high a view of reason and theologians have too low a view of reason. I don't think that'd be fair to either side, right. but I do think there are different instincts yeah. based upon that are very understandable based upon the different skills used within those disciplines for how reason applies to the divine nature. Mm-hmm. And I do think sometimes people talk past each other b- b- from both directions because um the theologians are just thinking about the role of reason in sorting out the nature of divinity differently. Yeah. And are, from my vantage point, more appropriately cautious about that. Yeah. But I acknowledge that there's lots of challenges that the theologians need to account for in, the, in the, how they do this. Yeah. And I, I definitely appreciate uh, you and your work here um, because of that, because I want to continue that conversation and I don't want to talk past people, and I I don't really have a, a bone in the uh, in the fight here because I'm I grew up in an evangelical free church, and mm-hmm. theology was for the eggheads, and so I didn't I didn't know about simplicity until uh, yeah I was already a man, and by then it was just confusing for me. So um, so I'm still kind of wrestling through this, and I think I also want to be fair because there's all these cliches that they're thrown that that you uh, successfully just avoided that you know philosophers just use reason and they're logic choppers and the and the theologians, they're just dogmatic and they don't want to get past their history. But mm-hmm. I think charitably, 
the theologians have limiting concepts like the creator creature distinction that help them affirm and disaffirm other things. Uh, whereas just like you said, you know, the philosopher focusing on how can I explain Christianity to my non-Christian uh, philosopher friends, they're not going to understand if I bring up the shorter catechism to them and say, well, you have to believe it in, in, because of this. And so I think exactly what you said, just the different contexts they're coming at um, this question and the different tools they're using. But it's still so frustrating for me because I'm a, I'm a current theology student working on master's degrees. And so it's just so hard to know, to, to come to this, uh, to a conclusion. Mm -hmm. So all that to say, I'm still wrestling. I'm still struggling with it a lot. Oh, wait, actually, I, be, here's, here's, I think what I, I need from you. Um, triage. What do we do? Where is this on the, on the triage scale? Simplicity. Ah, okay. Well, and let me say before I answer that, just to, yeah. I, 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 criticized potentially criticized the philosopher side of things just a moment ago let me confess the sins of my own side a little yeah, bit to, e to equal out the cut the criticisms but i think just frankly lots and lots and lots of theologians especially evangelical theologians need to get better at philosophy and need to mm. treat philosophy with greater respect yeah um but that, we, in, uh, that's a huge area of weakness for evangelicals in fact that's one of the great goals i think of retrieval it can help us improve at that so mm. just even the scales on on that thing that's a helpful. little bit there yeah. um triage for simplicity uh people who won't like this but i see it as pretty important because it goes because not because of what it is in itself but because of how it logically then relates to other aspects of our doctrine of god or theology proper so I don't see someone who denies simplicity as outside of orthodoxy. So it's sure. not a first rank issue in that sense. I'm not thinking of Alvin Plantinga. He became a heretic when he published his book. Did God have, does God have a nature? Right. Don't, it's not that. <laughs> okay. Um, but I also don't think it's kind of like, Oh, you know, it's like the rapture or something like that mm, mm. because it does relate logically and theologically to other aspects of the divine nature that are really important. I mentioned absoluteness and aseity a moment ago. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I don't, I hate giving numbers to something because <laughs> then nuances don't come along, but I, I think it's pretty important. Okay. Okay. That's, that's helpful. Um, just a, a final question just randomly here. Um, uh, as, as to absoluteness, um, did you, did you cover, maybe I missed it in your book here. Have you covered that, uh, yet that, that topic? Have you, have you done any retrieval on the, the doctrine of absoluteness? Does it need to be? Because that's one I, I study uh, Cornelius Van Til a lot, and that's a big one for him, just that, that God is absolute. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I don't hear a whole ton about that in theology uh, today. Yeah, I don't uh, think of that as as bold a category or heading Okay. Within theology proper, and I don't retrieve it itself. I think I bring it into the discussion, kind of obliquely, as a consequence uh, that's bound up with simplicity. Okay. And absoluteness just means God is not defined. God is not conditioned by anything external to Himself. This is one of those things that you know comes up that is so important. So it's not as though that love is something that is in some way anterior to God or external to God in some way, and then God happens to come along and correspond to it. So we right. say God is loving. Right. That's the danger. That's the real problem is we want to maintain God alone is God. Yeah. God alone is the source of all. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, absoluteness would be a, an important piece of the discussion that probably needs more focus. That's helpful. So, so, so absoluteness, God is not conditioned by anything external to him. And then aseity is that God has his own, life from himself his own he's from himself but yeah is that so would that be like the external limit and like the the source of his self or how do yeah can you describe a sadie i guess for us before that, we that, go? that could be a good way to put it absolutely yeah god is god has life from himself uh one definition of a sadie that i really like shockingly from Friedrich Schleiermacher okay. <laughs> the liberal theologian never expected i'd quote him approvingly but he basically says Everything depends on God. God depends on nothing else mm. other than himself. That's a way to get a, a saity. Wow, that is good. Schleiermacher for the win there. Yeah, I <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> never expected that. 
Yeah. Well, thanks, uh, Dr. Orland. Thanks for your time. This has been so great. And uh, I just want to plug your book because I think it's so important for us. Uh, so again, that's uh, Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals, Why We Need Our Past to Have a Future. Um, that's that's huge. Everyone go buy that book. And then, uh, Dr. Orland, one more time, can you plug your, your YouTube stuff and, and a couple of your latest uh, books that are out? Yeah, thank you so much, Parker. This has been really fun. The YouTube channel is Truth Unites, so people can check that out. And I would really appreciate subscribers uh, as I'm just still in my first two months of getting going. I think I have like 10 or 12 videos out now, maybe 15. Um, And then a couple of the books that have come out that might be of interest are uh, Retrieving Augustine's Doctrine of Creation. It came out this summer of 2020 from IVP Academic. Uh, That's an academic book applying Augustine's theology of creation to our current disputes about creation, which mm-hmm. has been a huge area of interest for me. And then a shorter, more popular level book is called finding the right hills to die on. And that came out in April of this year, April of 2020. Um, and that's about theological triage. Awesome. Well, thanks again. This has been so fantastic uh, for all the listeners there. Go check that stuff out. Uh, Lord willing, we can continue this conversation. We talk some more retrieval later in the future. Uh, but for now, that's going to have to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies. And as always, all glory to God.